Chapter 25. Do I think that the job is actually fucked? So, finally, the $64,000 question. Do I personally think the job is actually fucked? On balance, I don't think that the job is fucked. Not just yet, anyway. Rather, I think it's certain parts of 21st century British society that are fucked. The police are out there 24 hours a day, trying their best to fix a lot of things in society that are broken. But this has become completely impossible because so many barriers have been put in their way. They've been badly let down by some terrible leaders who have put their own selfish career ambitions before the best interests of the organisation or the public, and by politicians on both sides of the political divide, particularly those since 2010. What has happened to British policing is a cautionary tale about what happens to a public sector organisation responsible for dealing with the lives of real people in the real world when politicians with no understanding of what they're messing around with are given free rein. During my time in the service, the police suffered at the hands of a generation of professional politicians from both sides, who had very little experience of life outside the Westminster bubble, where personal competence and integrity were, and sadly still are, in very short supply. It was a triumph of expediency over individual and collective integrity and accountability. It's like the organisation has been in a terrible car crash, which has caused multiple injuries and it requires a long convalescence and many years of reconstructive surgery. At this moment in time, the victim has been cut out of the wreckage and has been tended to by paramedics. But there's a very long way to go yet. I sincerely hope that the British police can turn things around and return to being the best service in the world. Boris Johnson's promise to recruit an additional 20,000 cops over the next three years, despite the fact that there are 30,000 who are due to retire, could temporarily make things worse. This is going to swamp the organisation with very inexperienced officers who for the first two years will be a bit clueless and who will be trained and mentored by officers with very little service who are only slightly less clueless. This is not a great combination. And unfortunately, it will probably result in some pretty major screw-ups and miscarriages of justice. When my generation of police officers joined, we were tutored by officers who were long in service and super experienced, and they were generally very good at passing on their knowledge. It's always amazed me that the police service makes almost no effort at all to retain the experienced officers who decide to resign, or for that matter, try to capture and pass on the knowledge and learning of the most experienced officers to those who need that knowledge. I'm very fortunate now that I can work with a range of high-tech commercial innovators to build technical solutions to help law enforcement. However, for every one of me, 
there are many thousands of experienced officers who leave the service and have no means of putting anything back into policing to help inexperienced officers. Whilst most retired officers have no desire to be rolling around in the gutter fighting drug dealers anymore, many of them would like to be able to put something back into policing. I think we need to find ways to help them do that, without tying them up in red tape. Another big concern for me in this development is corruption. Mercifully, the British police force is relatively free of corruption, and those officers who are corrupt get found out, investigated and kicked out quite quickly. However, when there's pressure to recruit large numbers of officers very quickly to meet government targets, corners will inevitably be cut and standards will be lowered. Police leaders and HR departments will deny that this is the case, of course, but it's inevitable. We've known for years that organised crime groups and terrorist organisations are constantly trying to covertly infiltrate the police. They will identify young, ostensibly clean associates who have no criminal record that are loyal to them. Then they will deliberately try and plant these people into the police to act as their eyes and ears, to pass on intelligence and assist them. This obviously poses a massive risk to the organisation. The UK forces need to be incredibly careful that the pressure to recruit in order to hit targets does not open the door to future criminals in uniform. Another very unhelpful legacy of the muddled and misguided conservative reforms, in inverted commas, of policing was the insistence that every new police constable has to obtain a degree, either before joining or as part of the training. A university degree does not in any way equip new officers for the realities of operational policing. I was a graduate when I joined, and I actually think it was more of an impediment than a help. I over-intellectualised things, and it took me much longer to tune into the world of criminals and the dysfunctional characters that the police routinely deal with than my colleagues who had more general life experience before they joined. Many of the very best police officers that I worked with over the years were not graduates, and having a degree would not have made them any better at doing what is an intensely practical job that requires loads of common sense and life experience. Expecting non-graduate officers to study for a degree whilst training is also a massive waste of time and money that would be better spent keeping the public safe. I started writing this book six months before a global pandemic changed the world. At the time, things were looking up for policing. Theresa May had started a new life confined to the backbenches of the House of Commons, and Boris Johnson had pledged to recruit 20,000 officers to replace those lost over the previous 10 years. There were also encouraging signs of significant investment across the public sector generally, and everyone was hopeful that policing had turned a corner. But of course, those hopes have now been dashed. COVID-19 has ensured that Britain will enter another period of financial restraint, and the government is again talking the language of austerity.
The policing minister, Kit Maltice, set out some priorities for policing outcomes for 2021-22 on the 17th of December 2020, which included the following. 1. Recruit 6,000 officers towards the 20,000 target. 2. Make £120 million of efficiency savings. 3. Collect more and better data. This simply underlines how out of touch the Home Office are with policing and the needs of the public. There was no talk of catching criminals or improving the response to new crime types that involve technology. The government wants to recruit 6,000 officers, but if they're honest, they'd admit that at least 10,000 officers need to be recruited, just to replace those leaving in 2021, in addition to the extra 6,000. Efficiency savings should simply be read as more police stations closed and sold off. And data? Seriously? The Home Office loves a bit of data. It's become the benchmark for police efficiency. Not criminals arrested and prosecuted. Not preventing people from becoming victims of crime. Not knives and guns been taken off the streets or kids rescued from county lines gangs. We need data. More data. Public confidence and trust in policing has fallen off slightly in the past few years. But I would argue that this is because of a relentlessly negative narrative from politicians and the media. However, despite this, it still remains very high, which gives me much hope. Every year, Ipsos Mori survey a representative cross-section of British adults and ask the same question. How much do you trust the following professions to tell the truth? This survey has been repeated in much the same format every year since 1983, and the results completely contradict the standard narrative made by journalists and politicians about the police. If only 15% of the public trust politicians, and only 23% trust journalists, whereas 71% trust the police, why is the police service painted so negatively in the media? Interestingly, trust in policing has improved more or less continuously since around 2008. Yet, if you listened to the dominant media narrative of negativity, you would think that no one trusts the police. However, having said that, the horrific murder of Sarah Everard in March 2021 by a serving Met officer, Wayne Cousins, sent shockwaves through policing and the public. This was an abhorrent murder for so many reasons. However, the most shocking aspect of Sarah's death was the fact that the person who had conceived, planned and meticulously prepared for her abduction, rape and murder was a police officer. Her killer was someone who had taken a solemn oath to protect the public and he had turned out to be nothing but a predatory and murderous sexual deviant in uniform. Every decent police officer in the UK, past and present, was appalled 
by Sarah's murder. And many of us just couldn't understand how it was that Cousins had slipped through the net and become a serving officer in the Met. Even more worryingly, he had been given a gun as a diplomatic protection officer and had been the subject of a complaint of indecent exposure prior to the murder. Clearly, something had gone badly wrong with the vetting process in recruiting Cousins. Following Sarah's murder, the fallout for the Met was unbelievably painful. However, things went from bad to worse after a vigil was held in Sarah's memory on Clapham Common. The force was widely criticised for the way officers responded to the gathering when trying to enforce COVID-19 restrictions on the public gathering. A later review of the handling of the vigil concluded that the event was hijacked by a small but vociferous group of activists who were determined to draw the police into a confrontation. During the review, one female officer stated, During the incident, I distinctly remember multiple women coming up to me, wishing I was raped, with one female saying words to the effect of, I hope you get raped so you know what it's like. Another woman also said words to the effect of, I hope you get murdered and that your face is all over the news once you've been murdered. The media coverage of the event focused only on the flashpoint involving these activists and showed nothing of the many hours of sympathetic, supportive engagement with the thousands of people who had come to pay their respects to Sarah before the trouble started. I believe that the Met should have discreetly withdrawn from the vigil and let the event go ahead because what resulted was a situation that was impossible for the police to deal with. It was inevitable that trying to impose vague and unenforceable COVID-19 regulations would lead to a public backlash for the force. However, I cannot criticise the senior officer who ultimately made the call on that night, because I wasn't there. Like so many other positions that the police find themselves in, it was a lose-lose situation. It's been another dreadful year for UK policing, and for the Met in particular. The impact of all of the things that I've described in this book has been compounded by a global pandemic during which the police have been required to enforce constantly changing regulations with confusing and ambiguous guidance from central government. Police officers were given no special status in terms of vaccine prioritisation, despite the fact that many of them were being exposed to COVID-19 24 hours a day. The requirement for many officers and staff to self-isolate after coming into contact with someone who tested positive for the virus then put even more pressure on resources that were already stretched to breaking point. This puts the service on another collision course with the government. And in July 2021, the Police Federation declared it had no confidence in Home Secretary Priti Patel after an announcement that there would be a pay freeze for police officers in 2022. Further insult added to injury. The Clapham Common Vigil incident, and before that the Kill the Bill disorder in Bristol, as well as anti-lockdown and anti-vaccination protests, illustrated how it was now becoming almost impossible for the police to engage in any meaningful way with political activists 
and protest groups. In many ways, these incidents reflect a more widespread contemporary culture in which certain ideas have become weaponized by a small minority to create as much conflict and division in society as possible. In so much public discourse, it's become almost impossible for anyone to have a calm, rational debate about certain issues because a minority of vociferous people see everything as being based on a set of binary choices. If anyone dares to disagree with their views on gender, sexuality, economics, politics, or anything else, they're shouted down, cancelled, bullied on social media, and likened to fascists. These new authoritarians with their humorless sense of moral superiority and faux outrage are stifling debate. For them, no one will ever be ideologically pure enough or sufficiently committed to the cause of social justice. They don't see the irony that this sort of extreme intolerance logically ends in tyranny. On the other side of the political divide, we see the worst sort of right-wing populism, bigotry and intolerance, where outsiders and migrants are likened to vermin. This faction doesn't care that Britain is one of the most diverse nations on earth and that without migrants, our country would be infinitely worse off. We have a proud history of welcoming refugees and persecuted minorities. Without migrants, we would lose hundreds of thousands of highly qualified professionals. And the truth is that most of those who are British and unemployed would refuse to do the jobs done by migrants. But here's the thing. Neither side speaks for the majority because most people don't think or behave like this. The majority of people in Britain are reasonable, sensible and law-abiding. I truly believe that. My 30 years of policing have not left me bitter or cynical about human nature. Quite the opposite. I have an overwhelming belief and trust in the essential goodness of the majority of people in Britain. But the reality is that they're silent too much of the time and they've got to stop being silent. By not speaking up, they're allowing the unreasonable people who shout the loudest to shape government policy and destroy some of our greatest institutions. Everyone's trying to navigate their own reality and everyone's reality is unique to them, which is why binary belief systems are so dangerous. It's quite possible and arguably more psychologically healthy to be a bit right-wing on some issues and a bit left-wing on others. Many of the people I work with in Special Branch had some very strong views that might have been perceived to be quite left-wing or anti-establishment. But the thing that bound us all together was a strong belief in the democratic process. Police officers have to navigate, understand and deal with everyone's reality. And it's rarely a happy reality for them in that moment when they call the police. No one ever rings the police to tell them about something really brilliant that has just happened to them. Continually dealing with everyone's pain and trauma is hard and it can feel thankless. This is probably why so many police officers marry fellow members of the emergency services 
because they're one of the few groups of people who also get it. Like police officers, they see the very best and the very worst of humanity, and sometimes in the same person in a single day. Comfortable, middle-class, Western lifestyles have created generations of opinion formers who have never suffered trauma or encountered firsthand the reality that life can be incredibly hard, difficult and unfair. These so-called chattering classes have been too quick to judge the actions of police officers and other public servants who routinely have to deal with ambiguity, chaos and violence. I've been quite critical about the upper echelons of policing over the past 10 to 15 years. I don't believe that any of these people are bad people. Most of them are very decent people and many of them are also extremely competent. However, they've displayed a depressing enthusiasm for trying to appease a vociferous minority of critics who are frankly never going to be happy about the police and should just be quietly and politely ignored. There have also been some truly exceptional leaders in policing in the past 30 years. Sir Peter Imbert, Sir John Stevens, and Dame Cressida Dick are examples of Met commissioners who have been respected and loved by pretty much everyone who ever worked for them. As the current commissioner of the Met, Cressida Dick is an inspirational leader. She's had the political odds very much stacked against her. She has a fantastic mind and has shown herself to be at the very top of her game in every role that she's performed at every rank. She also manages to be a thoroughly nice person and has an impressive ability to remember all sorts of people that she's met only briefly many years before. She has occasionally received criticism for appearing to be weak on some contentious issues. But in reality, she's been managing an impossibly difficult situation. We definitely need more leaders like Cressida Dick, and we definitely need to stop listening to some of the dreadful police leaders who helped to get us into this mess. But overall, more than anything, the British Police Service now needs a new, clearer mission. The force needs to move forward in a way that ensures that the hard, painful lessons from the past are not forgotten. But at the same time, the focus is on tackling the issues that are really important to the average law-abiding person in the street. In turn, lawyers, politicians and the media need to lay off the police and stop blaming them every time something goes wrong. Things go wrong in life. They always have, and they always will. Hanging some poor copper out to dry doesn't help anyone. It just demoralises the people who are out there trying to do their best in difficult circumstances. A report published by Police Oracle in December 2020 showed that in the eight years between 2011 and 2019, a total of 169 police officers committed suicide. This is double the rate of suicide in the general population. This depressing statistic is the result of a number of factors that collectively conspire to make so many police officers kill themselves. Firstly, encountering human trauma, 
and dealing with complete arseholes every day, and then having to try to adjust back to normal life at home with family and friends can be very stressful. Then there's the impact of working horribly antisocial hours and having rest days and holidays cancelled at short notice. This has a massive impact on families and social lives, as well as screwing up the human body clock. I lost count of the number of significant family and social events that I missed as a result of working in the police. Christmases, school sports days, nativity plays, birthday parties and celebrations. I can also remember many times when I nearly crashed my car driving home after night duty when I momentarily fell asleep at the wheel. Finally, I think that many of the things that I've described in this book have a serious impact on the mental health of officers, unsupportive and out-of-touch senior managers, a culture of blame, a hostile political environment and a hostile media. Exposure to human trauma is obviously unavoidable in the police and the UK will always have its fair share of arseholes. Equally, there will always be a requirement for 24-7 shift work in the emergency services. However, there's a lot that can be done about the quality of senior managers, the support offered to operational police officers, and challenging clueless politicians. The media could also adopt a less hostile approach to police reporting. I was unbelievably fortunate to spend 30 years of my life working with some inspirational, clever, brave and funny people who did some amazing things. Right now, at this very moment, there's a police officer somewhere in the UK who's walking into a situation with no idea whatsoever of what they're going to see or what they're going to have to deal with. But deal with it they must because they know that no one else is going to. Everyone needs to remember that police officers are just ordinary people doing an extraordinary, frequently chaotic and often dangerous job. They've been treated pretty badly over many years and they deserve so much more support than they've received. More importantly, however, as a member of the public, you have a fundamental human right to feel safe. Police officers are the only people who get paid to keep you safe day and night, seven days a week. They're doing that for you, and you deserve so much better.